0: C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. How does a parent restrain a rambunctious child? Answer, by laying down the law. How does a teacher control a rowdy class? Answer, by establishing rules and regulations. How does the government prevent riots? Answer, by maintaining law and order. The conclusion is clear. Men must have law. It's the only way to prevent wrongdoing, misdeeds, and sin. You open a Bible, you will discover that that kind of thing is in the scripture. Or you no sooner begin to read the Bible than you bump into ten big laws and a lot of little laws. So it is clear, we must have law to prevent us from going wild. Right? To those who think that way, it'll be a little bit of, sh- of a shock to learn that in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul teaches that we are not under law. To people who are conditioned from childhood that you've got to have law to keep people in line, that kind of a message is a shock. I mean, as children, as students, as citizens, we're all taught we've got to have law. Now, how can Paul say, we're not under law? And to make it worse, he says, we're under grace. I mean, people immediately react to that and say, why, if that's the truth, if there is no law, then, why, you're free to go do anything you want. You're free to sin, right? And especially if you stand and teach that you're not under law, but you're under grace, why, that's even worse because grace forgives sin. So you even know ahead of time forgiveness is available. Isn't that going to promote sin? Isn't teaching that you're not under law going to promote sin? Well, that is a question of the gospel that needs to be squarely faced. And in the book of Romans, Paul brings it up and addresses it Head on. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 6 and look with me beginning at verse 15. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Romans and he says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when we were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the previous paragraph to this, which goes from chapter 6, verse 1 through verse 14, Paul concluded by saying in verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not... Under law, but under grace. That statement in verse 14 prompts the question in verse 15. Well, if I'm not under law, shall I sin? Because I'm not under law, but because I'm under grace. Paul's immediate reaction to that question is identical to his immediate reaction to the question he posed at the beginning of the chapter back in 6.1. Certainly not. He is repulsed by the thought that just because you're not under law, you would take that as an excuse to sin. He also follows a similar pattern as in the first question of one, by telling them in chapter 6, verse 16 that there is something they do not know if they come to such an erroneous conclusion. So at the very beginning as before in the earlier question, in the earlier part of the chapter. He begins by emphatically denying that we should sin so that grace may abound, and now he emphatically denies that we should sin because we're not under law but under grace. But now, why not sin? I mean, the fact is we are not under law. We're not under the Mosaic law. We're not under the Ten Commandments. That's the clear teaching of the New Testament. Well, then why not sin? I'm under grace. I am forgiven. I stand in God's favor. All right. Then doesn't that give me the freedom to go do as I please and sin? Why not sin? Well, frankly, there are many answers to that question one of which is given in this passage. In other passages in the New Testament, even other passages penned by Paul, there are other answers. But tonight we're going to look at the answer Paul gives in Romans chapter 6. He begins by establishing what I'm going to call as a principle. He does that in verse 16. Then he points to their experience and shows them that they have experienced this principle of which he speaks. That's in verses 17 and 18. Then, based on that principle and their experience with it, he gives them an exhortation in verses uh, 19 through 20 and shows the results of what will happen if they follow that exhortation. That's verses 21 through 23. So we're going to first look at the principle in verse 16, then their experience in verses 17 and 18, and finally an exhortation to them and the result that will follow in verses 19 through the end of the chapter. Let's begin with the principle. He says in verse 16, Do you not know to whom ye present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness. Now, frankly, that statement is the sum of all that's going to be said in the rest of the chapter. The principle is simply this, to whatever person or whatever thing you begin to obey that person or that thing, you become the slave to and of. Now, that's the principle. If you once start to obey a person, you become that person's slave. If you once start to obey a habit, you become that thing's slave. That's the point. Verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave? And it doesn't matter whether it's to sin or it's to righteousness. You are going to become a slave to that thing. Now, the question is, does he mean to insinuate or imply that a Christian could become a slave to sin. In other words, does verse 16 apply to believers? Well, believe it or not, there's a great debate about that. There are expositors who come to Romans 6 and they emphatically declare that this does not apply to Christians. They would argue something like A Christian is a new creature in Christ. He has the life of Christ dwelling in him. And therefore, he cannot live a life of sin. He cannot be a slave to sin. And they use this passage as well as others in the New Testament to argue that point. Now, as most of you who've heard me teach for years know, I emphatically deny that for the simple reason I read the Bible with my eyes open and not with my theological blinders on. It seems to me that it is incredibly obvious when you read the Bible that men who knew God and even loved God fell into sin and some of them unfortunately even wallowed in it. I would argue from this passage that Paul has said, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. Now, either that means that they could do it, or it's meaningless. If they could not do it, why did he exhort them not to let them do it? In other words, the position that says that a Christian cannot become a slave of sin renders the commands of Romans chapter six as absolutely meaningless and worthless. Why did Paul give them if he didn't mean them? Or just take verse sixteen. he says, "Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey you are that one's slaves whom you obey, and who's he speaking to? the Romans whom he identifies in chapter 1, as believers. And if you doubt what I say and want specific application of it, just read 1 Corinthians. It's blatantly obvious that a believer can, unfortunately, sin, become a slave to sin, wallow in sin, and be a slave to sin. That's the whole point, that I don't care who you are, Whomever you choose to obey that person, you become a slave to. And if it's sin, you'll be a slave to sin. And if it's righteousness, you'll be a slave to righteousness. One of the prints of expositors of the 20th century was a man named Donald Gray Barnhouse. For years, the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia had a radio broadcast that was nationwide and is one of the most respected Bible teachers of the 20th century. Dr. Barnhouse understood whereof I speak. And when he got to this passage in Romans, in his commentary on Romans, he illustrated it by saying this. Imagine a scale of a zero to 100, and that everybody is on this scale morally. A refined, educated, cultured person would be at, say, 80 on this moral scale those less fortunate less educated less refined he placed at about 40 or 50 and the savages and uncivilized places on the earth he placed at five on the scale and then he said this he said when somebody comes to christ who's on a moral scale of five they may progress to 8, to 10, to maybe even 15. And establishing a Christian home, their children may progress to 30. But it's not likely that some of those people are going to reach 50 and 80. And then he said this, and I quote, Officials of a Bible institute which train men for the Christian ministry told me, that in ten years they had trained several hundred students, every one of whom had been brought on the carpet at one time or another for bigamy, fornication, adultery, or worse. But the missionaries understood the situation, and they thanked God, because from utter savagery, these men who had been raised in polygamy were nevertheless growing in the power of the gospel and knew enough to repent of their sins and truly desire a holy life. And I say, Dr. Barnhouse, right on. But let me continue. Dr. Barnhouse said again, and I quote, Do not think that I seek to lower moral standards. God forbid. What I do desire is that Christians show the love of Christ toward others, and not allow the sins of individuals to prejudice their love. We must differentiate between sin and the sinner. We must love the sinner while hating his sin. This will cause us to show great kindness, patience, and love because we desire his spiritual growth. Then we shall thank God for what he has done, and we shall continue to pray that more may be done although these Roman Christians had been servants of sin, they had obeyed the gospel from the heart, they were now new creatures in Christ Jesus. The context shows that they were outwardly little different from what they had been before. Inwardly, however, there was a change. Paul knew that they were growing, and he praised God. Some who consider themselves Bible teachers will scream against this teaching, for they claim that the Roman believers had become thoroughly sanctified. They had become nothing of the kind. I need not tell members of my congregation not to get drunk, for they do not get drunk. Neither do I need to warn them against lasciviousness, for they do not engage in such activities. But since Paul told the Corinthian believers, not to do certain things, it is evident that they were still doing them. Likewise, Romans 6 is talking about the human limitations of the Roman believers, the frailty of their nature and the infirmity of their flesh. End of quote, Donald Gray Barnhouse. I'm laboring this point for two reasons. One is there are good Bible teachers on other areas who come to this subject and insist that Christians cannot live in sin. And secondly, I want you to know I'm not alone in saying that they can, no less than a Donald Gray Barnhouse has preached that Christians can be slaves of sin. Now, before we continue, let me sum up what I've said. I've established one simple principle, and the principle is this. Whomever or whatever you start to obey, to that person or thing, you will become a slave. That means if you start sinning, you'll become a slave to sin, and if you start living a righteous life, you'll become a slave to righteous living. That's the point of Romans six sixteen, And furthermore, I am suggesting that applies to Christians as well as to non-Christians. Now, at this point in the passage... Paul points to their experience. And he says in verse 17, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you become a slave of righteousness. These are fascinating verses. Several things we need to note. He says in verse 17, you were a slave of sin. That was your experience. But you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine, and the word form here literally means pattern, to which you were delivered. Now, he's talking about their conversion. They were slaves of sin. And, he says, they obeyed from the heart a doctrine that formed a pattern, that form of doctrine, that pattern of doctrine. Now, let me explain. The doctrine he's referring to is the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died for our sins and Jesus Christ arose from the dead. That the death of Jesus Christ pays once and for all in Tito for every sin we've ever committed or ever will commit. Based on the death of Jesus Christ, we have free forgiveness and are given the gift of eternal life. That message issues into a command. The command is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 16, 31. God commands all men everywhere to repent. The gospel issues in a command. That's critical. Now, what Paul is saying in Romans 6, 17 is you obeyed that doctrine. You heard the message that Jesus Christ died for you. You heard the command that God commanded you to believe in Christ, and you did it. Now, he says, it was that doctrine to which you were delivered. It's a cute way Paul puts it. I think we would be tempted to say that doctrine was delivered to you, but the Holy Spirit bore them and delivered them to the doctrine. At any rate, he is saying you obeyed that pattern of doctrine and now you have been set free from sin and you become the slave of righteousness. You get the point? Look at the principle in verse 16. Whomever or whatever you obey, you become that thing or that person's slave. That's the principle. Now let's talk about your experience. You were, you started out obeying sin, so you became the slave of sin. But now Paul says, let me tell you that in your experience, you obeyed the gospel. You obeyed a command of God to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And now that sets up a new pattern in your life so that you become a slave of righteousness. Very interesting. In Romans... 6, 1 to 14, he said, you were freed from the slavery of sin. Now, he says, by obeying this command, you've set up becoming a slave of righteousness. In other words, this is important. Hear me carefully. Whatever you obey, you become the slave. So, you obeyed sin before your conversion, and you were a slave to sin. Now, you've obeyed the gospel, And something has happened inside. Jesus Christ has entered for one thing. You're given a new nature for another. But more importantly, in this passage, you've made a choice that was from the heart. In other words, there was no law. There was no external pressure. You did this voluntarily from the heart. And so now the bent of your heart is toward righteousness. That's what he's arguing. The principle is stated in verse 16. Their experience is stated in verses 17 and 18. So he is saying, by obeying the command, you in your experience have in your heart a bent now toward righteousness. Based on all of that, he gives an exhortation. The exhortation is in verse 19. He says, I speak in human terms. Because of the weakness of your flesh means the illustration he's just used of slavery. If you stop and think about it, it's not a very appropriate illustration. Slavery isn't a good illustration of Christianity because Christianity sets us free. So he says, pardon me, I'm using this human illustration of slavery, but that's because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness or holiness. And then he explains, verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were freed in regard to righteousness. Now here's the exhortation. When you were an unbeliever, you used your body to sin. You used all the members to sin. Now, just as you chose to sin when you were an unbeliever, so now present your body, choose, live a godly life. And I think I would say, just as you did it with all of the gusto that was in you, so do it with all the gusto that is within you now. Matter of fact, I think it is an um, interesting little twist in life that some people sin half-heartedly, and some people sin with every fiber of their being. And those people who sin half-heartedly trust Christ, and they start living a Christian life half-heartedly. And interestingly enough, some of the people that just gave themselves lock, stock, and barrel to sin, get saved, and they just give themselves, if you'll pardon the expression, whole hog to righteousness. You ever notice that? Well, that's Romans chapter 6. That's verse 19. Just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Just the way you did it when you were an unsaved person and I think he has in mind the kind of person that's giving it everything they got, so do it the same way now. Go all out. You want all out for sin? Go all out for righteousness. That's his point. That's his exhortation. Because you see, you're going to become a slave to whatever you give yourself to. So give yourself to righteousness. That's the exhortation. By the way, at this point, begins to introduce some consequences. He's mentioned them earlier. He's going to amplify them in a moment. But just in passing, notice that in verse 19, you present your members as slaves of uncleanness and lawlessness. Uncleanness is sin in relationship to you. You became defiled, unclean. Lawlessness is sin in relationship to the law. It is a violation of God's law. One is subjective and one is objective. Anyway, that is the words he chooses to describe, sin. Now, he says that led to more lawlessness. That's Romans chapter 1. You started out in sin, and what happened? God gave you over to more sin and more sin and more sin. You know what the reward of sin is? Among other things, it's more sin. That's Romans 1. So the result is more sin. But then he says in verse 19, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Just as when you were a sinner and unregenerate and you presented your members to sin, to sin, to more sin, now present yourself to righteousness so there can be more righteousness, more righteousness, and ultimately a holy, godly life. So he's touching on the results in verse 19. Now, he explains in verse 20, when you were a slave to sin, (laughs) weird way of putting it, you were freed from righteousness. That's true, isn't it? I mean, when you're out there living in sin, you weren't a slave to righteousness, were you? Now, what he doesn't say in verse 20, but what is implied is if you become a slave of righteousness, you're freed from sin. So, the exhortation is, present yourself to righteousness and all of the members of your body, so that you can produce a holy life, habits of holiness, as Ryrie calls it. Now, beginning in verse 21, he talks about the results of those two things. He's touched on it. He's now going to amplify the results in order to enhance the exhortation. He amplifies the results. So he says in verse 21, "'What fruit did you have then "'in those things in which you are now ashamed?' for the end of those things is death, all right? He's talking about your pre-conversion days, when you were in sin, away from Christ. What was the fruit? Well, pick them out, verse 21. You're now ashamed. One of the fruits of sin is shame. One of the saddest commentaries on our society is that we've lost the ability to be ashamed of sin degradation. But one of the results of sin is shame. And the other, the end of those things, he says in verse 21, is death. Now, I have suggested that death in Romans is not the funeral at the end of your life. There are statements in Romans that indicate that um, death is here something like experiential death. It is the death of your spiritual life, perhaps. It's that kind of death. But that's the end of sin. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, the wages of sin is death. You die. It's obvious that the Bible uses the word death in other than a physical sense. Adam was told the day he ate the fruit, he would die. And the day he ate the fruit, he did not die physically, but some things died. Now, all I'm saying is this. The result of sin is shame and death, but not necessarily immediate physical death. There's death in other ways as well. Matter of fact, this, just this past week, I was pleased to hear uh, an outstanding Bible teacher on the radio, and uh, he was saying exactly what I'm saying now, so again, I'm not the only one to say this. Paul said in the pastoral epistles that a woman was al- was alive, though she was dead though she was alive. Remember that statement? That's the way death is being used, so that when you sin, something dies, and ultimately, physical death is the result. So that he says in this passage, the wages of sin is death. That statement at the end in verse 23 is a sum of what he is saying, beginning at verse 21. So he says, the fruit is death. Now, let me just tell you something. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, if you sin. You die. Sin is the death of many a marriage. I think that's a perfectly appropriate way to use the word death as Paul uses it in Romans 6, 7, and 8. Your spiritual life dies. There's no love. There's no joy. There's no peace. But other things die. Your marriage can die. The wages of sin is death. Sin is the death of not only a marriage, but a ministry. And Jim Baker sinned. It was made public. It was all kinds of publicity. And what happened? His ministry died. Death results not only in a marriage and a ministry, but the man himself dies, ultimately, physically. The wages of sin is death, and that's Paul's point. You choose to do it, you become a slave of it, and the taskmaster of sin here personified in this passage ultimately slays you. Charles Haddon Spurgeon told the story of a king who called the subject into his court and asked him his occupation, and he said he was a blacksmith. And the king required that he go make a chain of a certain length. And, of course, the subject went and did it. And when he brought it back to the king, the king looked at it and said, I want you to double its length. The blacksmith, of course, went and did that. And when he returned, the king said again, I want you to double its size. And that happened two or three times. And finally, the blacksmith came, and the king commanded that they tie the man up with the chain and throw him into a fiery furnace. What a picture of what sin does to the one committing it. You labor at sin. You're weaving a chain that will ultimately bind you and kill you. The fruit is shame and death. The wages of sin is death. Well, what if you give yourself to righteousness? Well, Paul discusses that too. He says in verse 22, "'But now, having been set free from sin, And having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. If you give yourself to sin, the result will be slavery, shame, death. If you give yourself to righteousness, the result will be, slavery to righteousness. It'll also be holiness. And the end, the end is everlasting life. Now, in explaining that statement, Paul says in verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at verse 22. The end is everlasting life. Look at verse 23. The gift is everlasting life. By the way, some of your translations will read everlasting and eternal. In the Greek text, it's the same. Two different translations of the same phrase. But what I want you to notice is that life is the beginning in verse 23. It's the end in verse 22. If you recall us going through the book of Galatians, when we got to chapter 6, I explained this. That eternal spiritual life begins as a gift and if nature takes its course and it is allowed to properly develop, it will end up in life, an abundant kind of life, and even producing more life. The illustration is uh, physical life. I did not earn physical life. It was given to me as a gift. As nature takes its course, as the baby grows, that life develops, and it can become a free, abundant kind of life, and that individual can have children and grandchildren and other children can result. More life can result. Now, Paul is arguing that you are given the gift of eternal life when you trust in Jesus Christ. If nature takes its course and that life develops and you, and you give yourself to that life and its development and its nourishment and its growth, then the end is going to be, well, he uses the phrase, more life. Eternal life. I think it's the kind of thing Jesus said in John 10:10. 10, 10. I am come that you might have life, and that you might have that life more abundantly. That's the result of giving yourself to righteousness. I think that in the context of Romans 5, 6, and 7, this ultimately goes back to what he started out with in the early verses of chapter 5, where he talked about peace, and he talked about love, and he talked about joy. And just as I think sin can kill that kind of life, I think r- giving yourself to that kind of life can produce love and joy and peace. And just as sin can kill a marriage or a ministry or a man, so righteousness can make a marriage or a ministry flourish it can make a man or a woman joy and abundance of living. So, his point is that the result of this principle of whatever you give yourself to, you become the slave of, is beyond that. You not only become a slave of what you give yourself to, if what you give yourself to is sin, it'll ultimately produce shame and death. And if you give yourself to righteousness, it'll produce life, eternal life, spiritual life and holiness. So, let's sum it all up. What Paul is saying in this passage is this. The reason that believers should not sin, even though they're not under law but under grace, is because they become the slaves to whom they obey, and they have been freed from sin so that they could become the slaves of righteousness. If all that sounds complex, it's very simple. You obey sin, and you become a slave to sin. It ends in shame and death. You obey righteousness, you become a slave to righteousness, and the fruit is holiness and life. That sums it all up. Let me conclude by going back to verse 14, 15. Nope, verse 16. Where he says, verse 15, what then shall we sin because we're not under law? Now, he started out with law and developed all of this. Laying down the principle in verse 16 let me conclude by just saying, law will not stop sin. It won't do it. I think we use law on our children, and we should. But we get it in our heads that it'll do for adults, and it won't. We are so permeated in our society with if something goes wrong, establish a law that we transfer that to the spiritual realm and conclude, therefore, if something goes wrong, spiritually come up with another law. Law will not produce righteousness. Law will not prevent sin. To be very, very accurate, let me say it like this. I just said it. Law will not produce righteousness. That's the point. I mean, just think about it. Paul argues in the book of Galatians that law could not give life, and therefore law could not give righteousness. Let me illustrate. Imagine some legislature saying, we hereby pass a law that all stones in the state of Nebraska Produce apples. Now, there is no legislative body on the face of the earth and no law they could pass that would make stones produce apples, right? Right. So, here's what we do we get together and we're going to legislate life and righteousness and we're going to say, all right, the legislature is going to pass a law. Apple trees must produce apples. Guess what? Law is not going to produce life, and therefore it's not going to produce righteousness. Law can't do it. What do you have to have? You have to have the apple tree be given the gift of life, apple tree life, and then you have to nurture that thing, fertilize it, cultivate it, and it'll do it on its own from the heart. That's New Testament Christianity. The curse of New Testament Christianity is law. We try to legislate morality and legislate righteousness, and you can't do it. The biblical system is for God to implant within you life by grace. And then when you're free, you're free to cultivate that life and produce righteousness, and cultivate that light, righteous life, and produce a life of holiness. It's got to come from the heart. If this book teaches anything, it teaches that. Now, there's one problem with what I just said. And that is, uh, human beings aren't apple trees. So I've got to insert one little item in here that is the key to the whole thing and that is humans have a will, apple trees don't you have to choose to obey righteousness if this is going to work you've been given life you got it, no question about that That life, if cultivated, will produce righteousness, but the missing ingredient in here is that you've got to choose along the way. That's the point of verse 19. Just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. You must choose. And frankly, I believe this passage is teaching you as a Christian can choose to sin or you as a Christian can choose to live a righteous life. Now, you're not under law. Law isn't going to do it anyway. You're under grace, but you've still got to choose. And the choice you make determines the result that you will get. So why shouldn't I sin? I'm not under law. Answer, I don't want to become a slave to it. That's why. How do you get addicted to something? You start doing it. You do it enough times, and you're an addict, right? You do a thing enough times, and you got a habit, right? That's why you don't do it. I don't want to become a slave to it. It all comes back down to I'm going to choose to start in the first place. C.S. Lewis. Summed it up very well. He said, and I quote, I would say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, All your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and its fellow creatures and with itself. End of quote. In short, you have a choice. You can either sin or give yourself to righteousness. In short, you don't have a choice because if you once give yourself to sin, you will become the slave of sin and that will lead to shame and death. And if you give yourself to righteousness, you will become a slave of righteousness, and that will lead to holiness and real life. The choice, the first choice, is yours. After that, the choice is made for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are not under law, but under grace. We also thank you for the possibilities and the potentials that you give us because of that grace. Our concern is that even though you freed us from sin and taken us out from under the law, we have not used our privileges and our position properly, but we return to sin. Father, I pray that the Spirit of God will take this portion of your word and so indelibly impress it upon us and we will make right choices that will lead to right slavery and real life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.